Today's story is really kind of a microcosm of our summer series. We've been going through the book of Numbers, and then we jumped last week into the book of Joshua, and our series title is Crossing Over, and today's story is literally the crossing over story. It's the story of Joshua leading the people of Israel, and they cross a river, the Jordan River. So there's really no better title for this message than the series title. And when I think of the word crossover, I think of two things. I think of basketball, and I think of cars. Now, I know that there's not a ton of basketball fans here, but a crossover in basketball is a dribble. It's just one easy step right there. The man here is doing this. And basically, the whole idea of a crossover dribble is you go in one direction, and you cross the ball either between your legs or close by so the defender can't deflect the ball, and you cross over to the other direction. So it's, it's meant to create separation from your opponent, and then you can pass, you can shoot, you can drive, and it's, it's a kind of a standard move that, that people who are good at basketball have. They have some sort of good crossover dribble to create that separation. In vehicles, this has kind of been a newer term. Sports utility vehicles came out at least a decade ago, but now there's crossover vehicles, right? And a crossover vehicle is kind of a, it's still a car. It's kind of on the, built on the same platform as a compact car, but it also has some of the nice features of a sports utility vehicle. So these are called crossover vehicles because they, they kind of have four-wheel drive, some of them. They have hatchback options. So really, as you kind of look at both of these images, a basketball dribble or a crossover vehicle, you get a sense for what the word crossover means. And crossover is, is really a transition. It's a transition from one thing to another or from one moment in time to another. It's movement. And we we know what crossovers are, right? Because we, we do these things all the time. If you're driving during the week, I'm sure, especially in the city of Langley, you crossed over train tracks at some point. You went over them. If you're a walker, maybe you walked over an overpass or you drove over an under overpass. Uh, kids, a lot of times you learn not to cross over the line of disobedience, right? There's kind of that line in the sand of the chalk line, don't cross over this moment. And you realize when you cross over that, then there's going to be some sort of reaction. It's a change from one point. Or other one. Oh, I'm back. Perfect. That was a crossover. A crossover from volume to silence, right? It just timed perfectly. I planned that weeks ahead of time. And some crossovers are obvious, just like that sound, right? Boom, sound, nothing. And we have have examples of that. Um, I remember one of the, the first, it was actually the first time I crossed over the border. I grew up in Washington State, so for me, the first crossover moment was going north. And my family went to Peace Arch, and we were in our... Beautiful. That one wasn't planned. The first one was planned. That one wasn't planned. Going back to the story, my family, we were going up north to cross the border, and we went through the Peace Arch crossing. And I don't know if it's still like this, because I don't pay attention to this anymore, but there was, a, there was some sort of sign that said, now leaving the United States, now entering into Canada. But it's not the actual border. It's kind of as you're in the lineup waiting. And I remember because of the, the pileup of traffic, our car stopped, like right at that sign. And I remember my brother getting very excited. I was probably seven or eight at the time, so he was probably around 10, taking off his seatbelt and going to the back of the car. We had a hatchback and saying, I'm still in the USA. You guys are all in Canada. And it felt like one of those very distinct crossover moments, right? Like if you took a snapshot, well, we have three people in Canada at the time and one person still in the United States. And I find that kids especially are very good at isolating 
very black and white crossover moments. I, I think because a lot of times kids just see that as very definitive, one thing and the other, whereas you get older, you kind of see more, more lines of gray and you understand there's more smooth transitions. But you take students, kids especially, the last day of school, they go to school, they're a grade two student, right? They come home at the end of the day, now they're going into grade three, like completely different. It was only about six hours of time separation, but they see some of these very clear lines of transition. And some crossovers are like this. We see this in life. We, we understand that there's a clear shift from one life phase to the other. You earn a degree. All of a sudden, you have initials after your name. You win an award. All of a sudden, there's new recognition. A baby is born. A promotion is earned. You have some of these very distinct moments from one part of life to the next. And some crossovers are, are very painful. They're challenges. You think about a, a crossover moment like a divorce or a di- diagnosis of a disease or death, and you realize either these are also very clear moments where you're crossing over from one phase of life to another. But of course, there's others that are much more difficult to define. Like, what is the time, what's the crossover moment when you know you've really grown up? Is it a specific age? Is it a moment? Is it a moment of, of mental clarity? When does a friend suddenly become your best friend? How do you define that? How do you know when you've crossed over the point of being in love? I'm sure the ladies could tell us. Maybe the men can't. How do you know when you're ready to face a new challenge? When you think, okay, I'm ready. I'm now going to make that move. I'm now going to be a voice for this cause. I'm now going to enter this academic program. Those crossovers are tougher to measure, but they're still crossovers. And when you think about each and every one of our lives, crossovers are just a part of our life. We go from one crossover to the moment. And a lot of times when people choose to share their life story, whether it's a testimonial or they're recapping a friendship with someone, these are the things that that are highlighted, the crossover moments. Then I moved here. Then I met this person. Then this car accident happened. Then I got this phone call. Then someone asked me to do this. They're all crossover moments, and they have a way of changing us. And they're nothing new. We all experience crossover moments, and the Israelites had their share of crossover moments too. As we've been following these stories over the past couple of weeks, we've, said, we've seen that some of their crossover moments are very inspiring, and some of them are painful as well. But from our perspective, when we read these stories and these crossover moments, I mean, they go back to the book of Genesis and Exodus. But when we read these, at least for me, they seem huge, like monumental crossover moments. Last week when Mike was teaching the story of the spies being sent out and and Rahab who saved these spies, I mean, what a massive crossover moment if you knew what was going over. You send out spies and right away they're found out and you think, oh no. The enemy nation now has our spies? I mean, that completely changes the trajectory of the, of the plan. And yet, Rahab, through, through God's action, that, that is completely changed. And she's gracious, and her life is eventually saved because of that. It's an incredible crossover moment. We look at the stories before. You, you looked at uh, Balaam's donkey. I mean, Balaam's donkey has a conversation the donkey speaks. And you would think that's a pretty massive moment there that you wouldn't forget. Same too with the story before that, water coming out of a rock. Water comes flowing out of a rock and it feeds all the Israelites and it quenches their thirst. And we would think that these are the stories that would have a dramatic impact on people's lives. 
we think that these are the stories that would have a huge impact on our lives. And yet, these people have a really bad history of forgetting these moments. The crossover moments that their parents experienced are usually very quickly forgotten. But today's story is not about the Israelites' parents, the ones that forgot about crossing the Red Sea, the ones that forgot about the man and the quail and all these amazing stories. This, this story is about these people. And it might be the greatest crossover moment of all because it's not just a literal crossover moment where they, they go through a river, but there's all these other symbolic things that are happening. It changes their life. They aren't just moving from the east side of the river to the west side of the river. They're actually leaving this former life that they had of wandering around, as Walter was talking about, wandering around aimlessly, day by day, not sure what the next plan was, to actually going onto the soil of this land that was promised to them. And it has the potential to change every part of their life. But it can also just as easily be forgotten. So our story today picks up with where we left off last week. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 3 is where we are at. It just finished last week with Rahab and the spies in chapter 2. And at the very end of that story in verse 24, uh, we read what the spies say to Joshua. Verse 24 of chapter 2, uh, one of the spies says, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. And so we get this sense, once again, as readers of this story, there's momentum. God is doing incredible things. The people are starting to anticipate that his promise is going to be fulfilled. And we read that the, leave, that the people leave their camp at Shatim, and they make their way to the Jordan River. And there it is, this Jordan River. It's on the East Riverbank, and that's where they are, are camped out, and they're waiting for instructions. Now, if you're like me, you think, okay, Jordan River, what are we talking about? Are we talking about a stream that goes through my backyard, or are we talking something huge and mighty and fierce like the Columbia River or the Fraser River at points? And we do have a picture here that we can show you. Now, the, one thing I do know about the Jordan River is it's really long. It's about 250 kilometers long, and so there's going to be different stretch of width and depth and how easy it is to, to enter the the, uh, the river from the, the bank on either side. But what we find out in this story itself is, is the author is very clear in saying that it was flooding season. It was around the harvest, and the water had actually gone up onto the river banks, and so the water's full. And then you can see it a little bit in this picture. I talked to a couple of people from our church this week who have been to the Holy Land, and they, they've seen the Jordan River, and there's certainly spots kind of like this where there's not a great entry point. It's a very sharp kind of cliff down from, from the bank down into the river. There's other parts that are extremely mellow, and, and now as, as they've developed this area and tourists come in, they have bars and, and uh, different entry points. You can go down, you can go in the river. A lot of people choose to get baptized in the Jordan River. But from the context of this story, you put yourself in there and you think, well, if you're on, if you're on the bank here with a whole bunch of people, the first thing I would have thought of was, is this really the best place to cross? Because we've got a few hundred thousand people there. There's tons of overflowing water. There's probably going to be jagged rocks there. We probably have a little bit of white caps intermixed with, with some of the, the water that's just sort of sitting around. Is there a better entry point here? 
And we, we learned just from the earlier story of Rahab and the spies, these two spies, they left, right? They crossed the Jordan River, and at the end of chapter 2, we learn that when they go back, they ford the river, and, and they go back to the camp. And the author doesn't really say much about it at all. It doesn't seem all that interesting. So we know that at least two men have been able to do this, and maybe they chose to go a few miles further down. Uh, maybe they constructed some sort of flotation device to go across the river. But in any case, these people are here, and the plan wasn't to wait it out. It wasn't to, to say, what's the best entry point? Uh, maybe we should wait a few months until the rivers kind of go a little bit further down and it's not quite as dangerous. The plan was for them to cross now. And so the people are given instructions. The Lord God speaks to Joshua. Joshua speaks to the people. And it happens in chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. But some of their instructions continue into chapter 4. And they give us some greater detail. But I'm going to summarize what happens here. The first thing the people are told to do is to wait. Now, there isn't an explicit command that says to all the people, wait here. But based on the other things that they're told, it's pretty obvious that that's what they're supposed to do. What they're supposed to do at first is wait because the leaders are going to go first. And so Joshua says to the people that, their action during this time is to consecrate themselves because the Lord will do amazing things among you. And so this is what the people do, presumably for the rest of the day in preparation for the crossing day tomorrow. They sanctify themselves or they consecrate themselves. Now those are words that get thrown around a lot quite a bit in church. What they basically mean is they do whatever they can to make themselves presentable to God. They're preparing to meet with God and to have a moment with God as they have this crossover moment. I know when I was younger and my parents told me to make myself presentable, I began to figure out what that meant. It it meant take whatever dirty clothes I was currently wearing, take them off, put on clean clothes, wash your hands. You don't need to shower, right, when you're a kid and make yourself presentable. Just wash your hands, comb your hair, uh, maybe even brush your teeth. You do all these things to make yourself look presentable. The interesting thing that we see in the biblical story, is that while many times as we make ourselves presentable to people, we do that physically, our outward appearance. And there's a story later on in the scriptures where God says that he's not as concerned with the outward appearance because that's what humans concern themselves with. He's concerned with the heart. And this gets at, at really the meaning here of consecrating yourself. So the people spend time examining their hearts, presumably, and doing it in the way that they were taught according to the law. So there may have been some ceremonial cleansing. There may have been a time of atonement for sins and examining one's heart, but they're preparing themselves to meet with God here in this story. And the second part of this waiting process is active watching. So they sanctify themselves. They're ready to go, but they're not to jump into the river right away. They're told to watch and to wait because the leaders are the ones that go first. And so the priests, they're the ones that they carry the Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark of the Covenant is basically a big wood chest, and it has a a number of different things in there. It has the law. We find out later in the scriptures that it has Aaron's staff that that had budded from an earlier story, and it represents the presence of God. People understand that when they see the box, they realize that God is with them. He is in their midst. And so, amazingly, the very first thing that happens is the priests take this Ark of the Covenant, and they go up to the riverbank, and it, the story says as soon as the soles of their, of their shoes, of their sandals, as soon as their feet touch the river, the waters stand up. 
and they pile up into a big heap on either side, and the priests, they continue to walk in with the Ark of the Covenant on dry land. But the people are told to keep their distance. Now, we could interpret that a little bit as a sort of a holy respect and reverence for the Ark of the Covenant, but as we'll find out later on, they actually walk right by it because they actually pass the priests who are holding the Ark of the Covenant. So it seems to be more of a crowd control sort of a thing. I mean, if, if we had hundreds of thousands of people all waiting for this Ark of the Covenant to go, people couldn't see it if they all crowded around. So it almost seems like, hey guys, just, just wait, for, wait, give yourself some distance, and we're going to wait until they get far enough along before you follow. And so these people, they've, they've done this waiting process. They've consecrated themselves. They're, they're examining themselves, making themselves presentable to God. And now they're watching. They're actively watching so they know, when is it time for me to take action as well? And so the second step is then to follow. To do what they are commanded to do, they're told to, to follow the, the Ark of the Covenant and now this open way there on the dry ground. And they're supposed to go. And so they do that. They walk off this, this riverbank, and they go into the dry land with water on either side. And of course, we don't have some of the, the noises and the smells and the sounds that we would all experience if this was our own crossover moment. But you think about it. I mean, you probably feel the mist of the water as it's up at these great heights on either side of you. I'm guessing some of the kids, at least, are running around and, and screaming, and they're full of excitement, maybe some of the adults as well. You probably have to watch your feet, make sure you don't trip over rocks, or maybe there's some old tree roots or debris there, and they're walking. They're taking these steps, and like, how amazing would that be to know that you're walking through a river, and yet your feet aren't getting wet? You're going through dry ground. But the interesting thing is, is they get to the halfway point, and this is where the priests are still holding this Ark of the Covenant, but the priests with the Ark of the Covenant are told to stay there in the middle of the river. So there comes a point now where the people have to continue to cross, and this This guidepost, this symbol of God's presence is now no longer in front of them, but it's to the side of them and eventually behind them, and they have to keep walking forward. It's interesting to me that in a lot of our crossover moments as individuals, there comes points in that moment where it feels like we do things by ourselves. At first, they they have the Lord who paves this way, so to speak, symbolically by the physical presence, even though uh, hopefully those people knew, and, and we've come to know through biblical knowledge that God is always with us and God is always present. But they reach this point of now needing to take their own step of faith with that reassurance that God will protect them and not bring the waters back down on them. Sometimes there's moments in our life where we feel that God is with us, We feel like there's others with us. Maybe we even feel like a close friend or family member has sustained us and carried us halfway through this crossover moment. And then yet, there's another point where we're kind of left to do it by ourselves. And it can be very, very difficult, even though there's still dry ground right in front of us. But the people keep walking. They keep walking. They continue to be obedient. They keep their backs to where they came from the side of the riverbank where they'd been wandering for countless years, 40 years is is what the, the stories tell us, and they continue to walk. And this was their crossover moment. And they're going together as a group, which would have to be reassuring. There's family members. There's distant cousins with them. There's a whole group of people all crossing over at the same time. And this is how we're told the people cross the river. 
But the interesting thing about this story is that for the information that's given about how it happens and what happens and what steps, it's almost like the author spends even more time telling us about how significant the memory of this moment is. It's like the author cares more about the memory of the crossover than how the crossover actually happened. Which seems kind of odd, because if you think about being there, being one of those people there, how could you possibly forget that moment? I mean, how could you possibly forget the fact that you went to the Jordan River, which is this, this huge, long river, and instead of swimming through it, instead of somehow finding some sort of overpass to go over it or constructing a boat, you actually walked on dry ground. And you were there with everyone else. And you saw the Ark of the Covenant and the priests, and you walked on dry ground. How could you possibly forget that? How could any of us forget that scene? Well, I'm guessing that we could forget that moment just like we forget some of our other crossover moments in life. Like the time we looked into our spouse's eyes on our wedding day, for those of us who are married, and vowed to love them for the rest of our lives. Or the moment we heard God speak to us in a way that we'd never heard before, and we thought to ourselves, I'll never forget this. Or the time our hearts sank when we heard the medical news that confirmed our worst fears. Or the time our parents sat us down and told us that we were going to be moving and that we weren't, we weren't going to go to the same school the next year. The interesting thing about crossover moments is that they're significant in the moment, but they're easy to forget. Crossovers are significant in the moment, but easy to forget. It might be hard to imagine how an Israelite could forget the day that they crossed the Jordan, but the people who crossed the Red Sea, their parents, they seem to have a very poor memory of that experience. Crossovers are significant in the moment, but they're easy to forget. And even though an experience like that seems like it would never fade, I know that I sometimes forget the crossover moments in my life, which might be why this author spends so much time in chapters 3 and 4 talking about how they can remember this moment. Maybe the writer knew this same thing, that it's easy to forget some of these significant moments in our life. And so the rest of the story focuses on how the crossover will be remembered And as strange as it might seem to us, the image that he uses is a stone, rocks, lots and lots of stones. This is what the author says, this is how we're going to remember this story. This is how we're going to commemorate this and make sure that we remember how the Lord provided for us. And so this is what happens. And I'm going to need a few people to help me out here in just a moment. All the people are on one side of the river. They've already crossed. If we can envision ourselves towards the end of the story, we have the priests with the Ark of the Covenant. They're still there in the middle of the river. The water in front of them and behind them has been cleared. We don't know how wide it is, but I think it'd be a pretty wide gap if we've got hundreds of thousands of people crossing by. So they're still there, and everyone else has crossed. They're on the other side. They've already had their crossover moment, so to speak. And then there's instructions given by Joshua about what they're supposed to do, and it all has to do with rocks. So Joshua had already chosen 12 men before they crossed, and Joshua tells these 12 men that are representative of the 12 tribes of Israel that they're going to go back to where the priests are and pick up a rock 
and then carry it back. So I need a few people. If we don't have 12, we're going to have to make do. Who's going to be a, a, a carrier of a rock from where the priest's feet are? We're going to hypothetically say the priest's feet are over there at that communion table and the other communion table. You don't have to raise your hand. You can just do it. You can go right over. You take one of those rocks at the table and bring it back with you. There we go. We've got one, one leader of a tribe. That's good. Thank you. We've got another one over here. Doesn't matter if we have four, 12, 15 different people. Go take a rock and bring it back. And for the rest of us, this is what it would have looked like. We see these people leaving and getting a rock and bringing it back. But I'm also going to need someone else as well. And this is my bigger rock here. I was told today that this doesn't look like a a river rock because it's not very smooth, which is true, but it's what I had access to. These rocks are, are smaller, but this one's a little bit bigger. The people were told, to, the, the 12 were told to put it on their shoulder so we know that they weren't little rocks. Put it on their shoulder and take it back with them. And it's hard to know how long it took these, these 12, but they took these rocks back over and then we're told in the story that they took it back with them and then they placed it where they were spending that night. Now, I need, I need, I, I already have some people already making a monument here, so you guys are already far enough ahead of the story with me. Joshua does something at the same time. Can I have a Joshua? Kevin, do you want to be my Joshua and just stay here? Can you make this into a memorial pillar, please, for me? Thanks. We can have other people come and help them if he's not doing the best of job. He can be gracious and say, hey, let me give you a hand here. So as, as the 12 men from the 12 tribes, as they come and they choose their rock and as they throw it on their shoulder and walk back, Joshua himself comes to the middle and he constructs a memorial, almost like an altar. And the idea is that for, for all time, of course we don't know exactly for how long here, but the idea was there's now a memorial where they crossed this river to mark their crossover moment. You're fired, Kevin. You can go have a seat. That was a good try. <laughs> See, it's harder. You know, we think maybe it was 10 minutes. Maybe it was, maybe it was four or five hours that they were constructing this thing. And so Joshua, he builds this memorial here in the middle of the river. And as the, the 12 men are carrying their rocks back to them. And presumably, all the people on the shore are watching this. They're watching these rocks come towards them. They're watching the priests who continue to hold the Ark of the Covenant. And they're watching their new leader, Joshua, stack these rocks into this memorial. And the whole reason why this happens, the whole reason why they use stones as a, as a memorial and why they, they bring them with them and why they, they make this, this altar as, as a teaching episode. And so it says right in the text, it says it two times actually, as the, the author saying, this is what we are to do, this is how we can remember this, is that kids are possibly going to ask questions. And so the story says, when there comes a point when a child says to his or her father, Dad, what do these stones mean? Why are they here? That the parent is then supposed to say, Israel passed over this Jordan River on dry ground. 
And if kids are anything back then like they are today, I'm sure they probably would have asked a couple more questions from there on out. They might have asked, well, when did we do this? Why did we do this? How did we do this? What does this mean about our people? What does this mean about God? The Lord God dried up the waters of the Jordan River so that we could cross over. And the other interesting thing about this story, which ties into the end of of chapter 2, is as we get to the very first first of of, uh, chapter 5, we learn that when everyone heard about this, now the crossover event, sure, that may have been very significant. Maybe these rocks were significant as well, but the news spread. And so we find out that all the Amorite kings on the west side of the Jordan, where they are now, as well as all the Canaanite kings along the coast, they hear about this crossover event, and their hearts melt, and they no longer have the courage to face the Israelites. The rocks help people remember the Lord's faithfulness, and yet I can't help but wonder how long it was before some child, maybe even an adult, said, what do these rocks mean? Why are they here with us? Just as they were prone to forgetfulness, we are as well. And you and I have lots of ways of remembering. Many of us are wired differently for how we process information, the rituals that we do, and so we have a a whole bunch of strategies for how we remember significant events in our life, how we remember our crossover moments. Some of us are journalers. We do it on the computer, we do it in a journal or a notepad, and we journal down our thoughts what we've been reading, what we've been listening to, what we're thinking, what we're fearful of, but certainly some of those crossover moments. We journal, and we have that journal to save our memory. And for many of us, it's extremely powerful to go back four months ago or 10 years ago or to remember the date of a significant moment in our life and to go back and and think, what was I thinking? How did God move in my life in this way? What can I cling to and hold on to? Some of us use our minds in that way. We have good memories, or maybe we just practice diligently to have a good memory by memorizing something. We memorize a quote. We memorize a scripture verse. We write a song, perhaps, and we keep these lyrics in our mind to capture some of these crossover moments. Some of us get a tattoo. That's certainly the current thing of doing to memorialize something. We use ink We put that on our bodies. It reminds, there's some sort of story there. For a lot of people, it's a crossover event. It's so significant that they want that on their skin to remind themselves and to be able to share that story with someone else. And many of us create a tradition. We do a a personal ritual, a family ritual, something with friends where we say, this happened to me, and so now I'm going to make this part of my regular calendar to remember, to make sure that I honor this crossover moment. And in this story, the Israelites use what's handy. And what was certainly key to their crossing over the river, they use rocks. This is what they use. So I think the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what's our strategy? What do we use? What are the rocks that you use to remember the Lord's faithfulness to you? What are the crossover moments in your life, and how are you going to truly remember them? How are you going to preserve these moments, the painful ones, the joyful ones, the life-changing ones? 
How do you remember God's presence in the midst of those moments? By nature, we're forgetful people. We forget trivial things, but we also forget significant things. And I don't want to be a person that forgets the significant crossover moments in my life. I don't want to be the person that forgets or deceives myself into thinking, well, as I look back at that event four years later, maybe God wasn't all that present after all. Maybe it was just a number of unique circumstances that happened. Or as I think back on it now from my advanced wisdom, I can find, you know, I can just see how this laid out. Instead of recognizing that God was present and God was active. And I don't want us as a church community to be people who forget God's faithfulness to us either. And so as we think of this story and its significance, it's not just a story that's worth reading, it's a story that's worth remembering. And it's a story that's worth duplicating in our lives. It's a story that can change how we remember God's presence and his promises to us. So this is what we're going to do right now. I'm going to give everyone the option to take a rock. And I'm remembering now that I don't think I put the Sharpie pens out over on the table. So thank you, Tammy. She's going to take care of that for my forgetfulness. Looks like I needed to construct my own memorial for that after all. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to give you the chance to go to one of the tables or to come up front. There's a few nice rocks here as well. And to pick up a rock. And if you want to, you can take a pen with you as well. And you can write something down. You might want to highlight a crossover moment that you're currently going through or one that you're anticipating, a new job, a move, uh, someone who's getting on in years in your family, some sort of promise that God has been repeating to you. You might want to go back 20 years to some sort of moment and just think, you know what, that was significant to me, but I don't dwell on that as much as I would like to. And you might want to write down a word. Maybe it's just one word, a characteristic of God that that you really think this is when God showed himself to be present, showed himself to be just, whatever that word might be. You might just want to write that on the rock and then take it with you. You might want to write down numbers. Maybe it's a date. Maybe it's a Bible verse. You might want to draw something on this rock. But we're going to take a chance or take a moment to to have the chance to go and to, to take a rock and memorialize that And make sure you you put it somewhere where you're going to see it, where you're going to remember it. We're also going to to take time to reflect not only on this story, but on another story of remembrance. Uh, Just as the Israelites received very clear instructions for how to remember their crossover experience, Jesus gave his first followers instructions for how to remember him. The symbols they used weren't rocks this time, but food. Bread to remember his body that was broken. Wine to remember the blood that was spilled. And we recognize this now as celebrating the Lord's Supper or as communion. And we're going to do this this morning because it ties so well with remembrance. Remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. Remembering that for those of us that have chosen to follow him, this is an incredibly significant crossover moment for our lives. And so the band is going to come forward at this time. We're going to sing a couple of songs, and it's going to give you the opportunity to participate in communion and also to reflect on your crossover moments and to take a rock with you. Uh, This morning, we're going to take communion together, 
So as the music begins and as you feel ready, you can go and our communion servers are going to be there, Spencer and Ali on your left and Laura and Ralph on your right. They're also available to pray with you if you would like to speak to them. And if you'd like them to pray with you, they'll certainly be very willing to do that. But go to the tables and take the bread or take the rice cracker if you have a food allergy and take the the cup of juice and then just bring that back to your seat. And after we sing a little bit, we're going to take that together and remember that together just as the Israelites had those rocks. And together they remembered that significant crossover moment in their life.